With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Recovery Radio, where we discuss substance abuse treatment and recovery. You can listen live at blogtalkradio.com forward slash OCG radio. Please note that the views and opinions of our hosts and guests are not necessarily the views of OCG, nor is it meant to replace professional advice or the advice of your physician. And now, here's our show, Roach on Recovery, with your host, Orville Roach. Welcome, welcome to Roach on Recovery. This is your host, Orville Roach, uh, going solo today. No producer, no co-host, no engineer, no call screener. I'm going to be doing it all with all these flashing lights and confusing uh, interface. So if I cut people off, I apologize in advance. 646-564-9909. 646-564-9909 is the number if you want to call in to speak to your humble host. If you just want to listen to the show, you can go to our website, ocgworks.org. That's O-C-G-W-O-R-K-S dot O-R-G and click on the OCG Radio Live button. Or you can also go to blogtalkradio.com forward slash OCG Radio. You don't have to call in on the call-in line to listen to the show unless that's your only means and by all means, do so. Our show today, Relapse, Is It Really Preventable? And we're going to get into that. We've got a special guest that we're going to interview in a few minutes. Um, but first, let's, uh, before we do our recap, let's do a little bit of uh, some news, uh, some daytop news. Uh, first item is we want to send out our condolences to the immediate family extended family, the Daytop family, and friends of a one, Jerry Griffin, who passed away last week. 
Jerry was affectionately dubbed uh, the King of Queens by Daytop's founder, the Monsignor William B. O'Brien, because he worked for many years at uh, Daytop's Queens Outreach Center and spent many years working with adolescents, mentoring them, and ultimately changing and impacting their lives. So we wish the spirit, that is Jerry, uh, continued peace on its journey. Another item, uh, we were slow last week on the uptake, but in the uh, spirit of better late than never, one of our alumni, Ira Weiss, was to uh, undergo a heart procedure last week, which he is now successfully recovering from, and we just want to wish him well and uh, continued improvement. Uh, On the recap, under the what's good for the goose is good for the gander section, By the way, I just found out a gander is a male goose. I never knew that. The radio airwaves giveth and the radio airwaves taketh. I gave my co-host some jazz last week regarding a comment he made, and and now I'm in hot water with the missus over an innocent comment. Yes, I'm proclaiming my innocence uh, regarding a comment I hear. So let's hear the clip. Clip one. Let's go even though some of us would love to be alone. <laughs> so, I mean, hot water over that clip about stating about wanting to be alone. And uh, I'm being accused that the emphasis was placed on the us. Let's hear that clip one more time. Even though some of us would love to be alone. <laughs> yeah, I don't I don't uh, see any emphasis on the us. And then, then I said, well, let's look at this clip in context now. Let's, let's dial it back a little bit further and play it again. Can't do it alone, right? Even though some of us would love to be alone. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't think she has a case. Uh, so I'm, 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 I'm pretty confident that the judge will dismiss it. So I guess I'll call my uh, call my attorneys off and uh, let her know she's not winning that one. Uh, now I can uh, come in from out of the shed and uh, start sleeping inside. Start preparing for the Super Bowl because there's no TV in the shed. I think I'm a zero for 396, by the way, over the years for any potential wins. So, uh, but there is hope, folks. There is hope because in the farm system, I have a grandson who's turning two next month. So the women got him for now, but I'm just biding my time till I get a hold of him and start the brainwashing. But that's a story and a subject for another day. So. Before we bring on our guests, we're going to take a quick break, and then we're going to come back, and we're going to get right into it. We're going to get right into it about relapse. Is it preventable? And um, she's going to talk to us about it because she wrote a book on it. So we'll be back in a short minute. You hear that? What you won't do, you do for love. You'll try anything, but you won't give up. 
That's the attitude you need to have in recovery. You've got to love or learn to love yourself first. You've got to be willing to try anything that will help you succeed. And most importantly, you can never give up. Visit us at ocgworks.org. OCG, where hope grows. What you won't do to do for love. You tried everything, but you don't give up. Welcome back to Roach on Recovery. 646-564-9909 is the number, and we're talking about relapse. Is it really preventable? We have a guest today, Dr. Jennifer Bruja, who wrote a book called The Adolescent Relapse Prevention Planner. And we'll tell you why it's called The Adolescent and just not The Relapse Prevention Planner, as I wrote on our show description, but we'll get into that. But uh, full disclosure, uh, Dr. Bruja works for Our Common Ground as a senior uh, clinician. And uh, I believe she wrote this book in 2012. So let's welcome her aboard. Dr. Bruja, welcome to Roach on Recovery. For having me on the show. Well, we're very glad to have you. So today we're talking about relapse today. Is it really preventable? And in 2012, you authored a book. And I want to emphasize, this is not a brochure, and this is not a uh, little leaflet. This is a pretty thick book that you wrote. Uh, we're still investigating where you found the time to write it. Um, <laughs> but, um, and, and, and just so everybody knows, we actually use this. This is not something just sitting on the shelf as decoration. So let's start out with the obvious. Why, why a book on relapse prevention? Well, you know, there's lots of treatment plans out there, um, but they're mostly geared for adults. Teenage programs are underfunded, they're largely unavailable, and adolescents are just underrepresented in um, the treatment aura. And so I decided to write this book, one, to, um, to really focus on adolescents because they're in a unique period of their life there's a lot of development going on, and we don't realize how much um, adolescence really is important. Um, and like I said, there's a lot of people who won't work in the area of adolescence um, because adolescence can be very difficult. But if we um, really start to gear some of the treatment pro programs towards adolescence, then maybe we can prevent people from growing up, becoming older, and then going through decades or years of substance abuse and coming into treatment when they're in their 30s, 40s, 50s. And becoming adult addicts. Absolutely. So you, you wrote this book, if I recall, in 2012 uh, when yes. we actually still were serving adolescents. and. Correct. Now and and we're and we're now only serving adults, but we're actually still using this using this book, so it's actually transferable. You can not only just use it for adolescents; you can also use it for adults, correct? 
Absolutely. I use this every week in my drug ed uh, relapse prevention program. Um, I change them a, a little bit, but the basic program, the basic activities, the subject matter, it all stays the same for the adults. Because a lot of these adults started using when they were teenagers. Mm -hmm. And in actuality, at the age at which you start using is really the age at which you stop developing. Right. So a lot of these adults that are coming in for treatment are really at a teenage level, are at an adolescent level um, in terms of their development, neurologically and psychologically. So working with them, I find that they struggle with a lot of the same issues that kids do. Peer right. pressure, um, all different things that, that are very common and, and doesn't really count what age it happens at. Mm -hmm. To one, I found something very interesting and I want you to talk about it. It says, a letter to my drug of choice. What is that? Yes. Um, that is actually one of the more um, potent, if I can use that word, exercises mm -hmm. in the book. It's um, It sounds very simple, just writing a letter to your drug of choice. But really, a drug is a lot like a relationship. You know, okay. we look to the drug for support. It's not going to give us feedback. It's not going to be angry with us. It's not going to um, drop us like, like some people do in relationships. It's a lot like a relationship. And so writing this letter to your drug of choice, it sounds kind of crazy, but the first part is really thanking the drug or thanking the substance for what it did. Because at some point, the drug worked. That's right. why people continue to use it. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't matter if the drug is alcohol, if it's cocaine, if it's oxy, whatever it is, it worked for some period of time. Otherwise, people wouldn't continue to use it over and over and over again. So really, the first part of the letter is uh, one of gratitude. And... Um, Frankly, for a lot of people, it helped them get through a trauma or it helped them get through some other difficult aspect in their life. The problem is it stops working. Mm. It's only a temporary solution. Right. And you still have the problem. So the second part of the letter is um, really kind of breaking off that relationship with the substance and telling the substance, much as you would a person, uh, why it is you no longer need that substance, and what you're doing to help yourself in recovery. And so it can be kind of a transformative letter. Like I said, it sounds very simple. It sounds almost kind of corny. But when you really get into it, um, and in groups, what we have them do is, is have them write the letter individually. And I'll find that sometimes they'll write two or three letters. Mm. And... Um, They'll have different ones for, for different substances, alcohol, right. coke, whatever it is. And then reading them aloud, um, it really gives you the feeling of, you know, I'm really breaking off this relationship and I'm starting fresh. So it can be a very powerful exercise, one of my favorites, um, one of the more difficult ones, though. Now, I'm going to come back to Chapter 2. I just want to put this two things in chapter three that just jumped out at me. 
Okay. And and and, it, and they're not in the order that they're actually in in the book. So let me just start with. You talk about gateway drugs and the stages of use, and so, you know, yes. in the in the field, when we hear the term gateway drug, we we all you know, I think the first thing that comes to our mind is marijuana. Some people's even mm-hmm. cigarettes. What mm-hmm. are you talking about when you say gateway drugs? When I refer to a gateway drug, what I'm talking about is some kind of substance that kind of set the stage or open the door for other substances. So some of the more common ones are marijuana, of course. That's that's a big gateway drug, and it's it's a very popular one right now. Um, been getting a lot of attention. Another gateway drug oh, would yeah. be alcohol, mm-hmm. absolutely. Um, and then we also have cigarettes. A lot of people don't realize that cigarettes are a gateway drug, but so often when we ask an addict or we ask someone with a substance abuse problem, what was the very first thing you tried? They'll say a cigarette. And what makes it even more interesting right now is we have Mm e-cigarettes. And I just read a a survey that was done. They do the Monitoring the Future study. It's a survey that they've been doing every year since 1975, um, National Institute on Drug Abuse and National Institute of Health, they conduct this survey along with um, a university. And what they found was that among teenagers, a lot of the substance abuse was actually going down a little bit. Not a lot, but going down a little bit. And the big ones are, of course, alcohol, marijuana. They looked at prescription drugs. The one thing that went up quite significantly within a period of a year was e-cigarettes. And what they found was about 17% of adolescents in the U.S. are smoking Mm e-cigarettes. Just two years ago, it was not even close to that. Mm -hmm. So that, I think, we're going to find out is going to be a big gateway drug for a lot of people. And the last gateway drug, I would would say, uh, that also doesn't get much attention but can do an awful lot of damage would be inhalants because kids are at younger and younger ages getting things like whiteouts, getting paints, and starting to huff it, starting to sniff it. And and a lot of them aren't even in the double digits in years. So between those really five gateway drugs, um, there's quite an area of um, quite an area of controversy. And some people would argue that there is really no such thing as gateway drug. I would argue the exact opposite, that yes, there are, in fact, gateway drugs. Right. I agree. You talk about triggers Mm -hmm. and coping responses, because that is something we, we, we spend a lot of time trying to teach clients to identify what their triggers are. And yes. obviously, once you do identify them, then you have to develop coping mechanisms. So tell us about that right. in your book. All right. So um, triggers and coping skills are basic to a relapse prevention uh, plan. Triggers can be people, places, things. They can be thoughts, feelings, and behaviors. And so often we forget that feelings can be triggers, and we tend to just think of, you know, people and places that are triggers. 
um, parks that kids used at, uh, the beach, uh, alleyways, things like that. People, friends, friends who use, dealers, all sorts of different people. Also, and then, of course, one, things... I don't mean to interrupt. Oh, I think one of our one of our listeners also had mentioned that uh, thing, something that we, we often don't think about, sounds and smells. Absolutely. The smell of marijuana tends to be a big one or the smell of alcohol. Mm -hmm. um, I have talked to quite a few kids who have real difficulty uh, walking down the, the aisle at the grocery store with all the alcohol because mm -hmm. the smell does come out, but it is such a trigger for them. And mm -hmm. you don't think much about it because it's just a grocery store. However, you take somebody in who's trying to stay clean and sober into a, into a grocery store and go down the alcohol aisle, it can be a huge trigger. Mm -hmm. um, again, also the smell of marijuana, the smell of cigarettes, um, just seeing marijuana, just seeing the smoke, those can be big triggers. And, of course, then there's also uh, thoughts, feelings, and behaviors. Thoughts... For example, um, feeling like self-harming, thoughts around um, quite a few different things, self-sabotage, those kinds of thoughts can lead to substance use. There's also uh, behaviors. So a lot of individuals um, pair up you know, fighting with substance use or gangbanging with substance use or just criminal activity with substance use. And then I think the most underrated, but probably the most difficult triggers to work with are the feelings, because we can only limit them so much. And what we find is um, a lot of teenagers, and this is the same, this is true for adolescents as well, they use it to avoid feeling certain feelings. And then when they turn into recovery, they get sort of this rebound experience in feelings, and they have more feelings than they had before. So feelings can be a huge trigger. Anger can be a big one. Sadness is a real big one. Guilt and shame. And uh, these are all feelings that you know anybody at any age can experience. Of course, with substances, once you stop using, it becomes magnified. Right. And so really, emotions are probably the most underrated uh, trigger out there. So relapse prevention is now a significant part of treatment and recovery, uh, yes. the educational process. Um, do you mm -hmm. think clients are sufficiently open to and aware of the preventative tools being taught prior uh, to them themselves experiencing a relapse, or is it after they experience a relapse that they buckle down and really start to pay attention from your experience? You know, unfortunately, and, and it's the same with regard to adolescents or adults, most people who have a substance use problem don't really recognize that it's a problem until they've had some pretty severe consequences or they've mm -hmm. had some kind of consequence that's affected them in a negative way. Mm -hmm. um, and, of course, denial can be a huge part of the issue in the beginning because who wants to admit that they're an alcoholic or that they're a drug addict. Nobody wants to do that. So there tends to be a stigma around admitting that there's a problem. 
And I think way too often, especially with the kids, they don't realize all of the tools they have and all the coping skills they have until they almost lose them. Family, for for example. I've seen over and over and over again where kids have entered treatment and then all of a sudden, you know, they want to see their family all the time and they want to work on their family issues and they really want to focus on family. The family's always been there. It's mm-hmm. just when they were using, uh, the family wasn't so important. It was more the substance that was important. So a lot of times they don't realize what it is they have and the tools they have until they almost lose them. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately for a lot of adolescents, they haven't been using that long, uh, as opposed to adults who might be using a long time. And it takes some kind of major crisis for them to really realize there's a problem. It speaks about uh, managing peer pressure. We know peer pressure mm-hmm. to be probably the most powerful pressure known to man. Yes. How do you... Um, in trying to teach relapse prevention, how do you educate them on the on peer pressure and what it can do? Good question, because peer pressure is probably one of the biggest triggers out there and one of the biggest reasons why people relapse, and not just relapsing once but over and over. You know, it doesn't really matter what age you are, you're going to experience peer pressure, whether you're 15 or whether you're 55. There right. can be peer pressure at any age, but it's expe- it's especially difficult with the teenager because at that time, the most important things in life for an adolescent are their friends. And they're very much influenced by their friends, what their friends think, what their friends do. And so if they see their friends with an attitude about substances that's okay, that, you know, it's okay, marijuana won't hurt you, or or alcohol won't do anything, or don't worry, ecstasy isn't addictive, and they see them using it, the chances of them using it go way up. So for an adolescent, you really have to hone in even more so on the peer pressure because it is a huge relapse trigger. Mm-hmm. And um, that really needs to be a part of any substance abuse treatment for anybody, like I said, regardless of age, especially for teenagers. And we should we should also include that there's peer pressure from uh, family because we've worked with a lot of kids whose families use, siblings use, cousins use, Maybe they've seen their parents use or they've even used with their parents. Right. So so there is a lot of peer pressure coming in all different ways. Um, In building communication skills, what is self-talk? Self-talk is the way an individual really talks to themselves in their head. And we have positive self-talk and we have negative self-talk. So negative self-talk would be, for example, thinking to yourself, good enough, I'm ugly, I'm not smart enough, I'm not pretty enough. That would be negative self-talk. And when we talk to ourselves in a negative way, it tends to make us think negatively about ourselves. And we tend to behave in ways 
that are negative to ourselves. Versus positive self-talk is about talking to yourself in a positive way. So giving yourself kudos for getting clean and sober. Telling yourself, I am good enough. I am smart enough. I am popular enough. And the more we think positive, the more it will help us in recovery. In your last chapter, the title is Maintaining a Clean and Sober Lifestyle, which is obviously the ultimate goal. And mm-hmm. you spend a little bit of time talking about mindfulness. And yes. this is its an old term, but it's now a new term that's out there a lot. Tell us a little bit about it. So mindfulness is really about being in the present. So often we tend to get wrapped up in either the past and we get stuck in the past and we can't really move forward Mm -hmm. or we start to future trip and we get stuck in the future and that's all we think about. And really when we're stuck in the past or when we're stuck in the future, it prevents us from really being in the present. And so mindfulness is definitely a growing movement. Uh, In fact, there's a lot of research out there right now that shows that mindfulness is very therapeutic, not just for substance abuse, but for also eating disorders, for depression, for a lot of different mental health issues out there. So it's definitely a growing subject right now and one that will aid somebody in maintaining recovery. What's the uh, biggest misconception about relapse prevention, you think? You know, the, the, the biggest misconception, I would say, is that so often we think of relapse as being just the act of using, when in reality, relapse is a whole pattern that mm-hmm. starts long before the actual use. Mm-hmm. So so often, you know, we tend to think of a relapse as just, you know, going back to drinking Um, taking a shot, taking um, a whiff, using that substance. But in reality, if you backtrack it, you'll notice that there's a definite change in attitude, a definite change in thoughts and behaviors that accompany a relapse. Mm -hmm. And, you know, one of the most interesting things is when we look back and we talk to kids who have been through treatment, And we ask them, you know, what was the very first thing that you noticed that might signal that you were starting to go down that slippery slope? And do you know what that is, Orville? Nope. That is, and it sounds very simple, and it's really kind of funny, but the biggest thing that people say over and over and over again is, I stopped making my bed. And it sounds so simple, and I mean, it really sounds kind of ridiculous, but if you think about it and you backtrack, you know, there there is a change in behaviors. That person mm-hmm. begins to think differently, right? They might take on a little bit of negative thinking, gradually more and more negative thinking, pessimistic thinking. They might be going back to a lot of the thoughts they had when they were using, feeling non-caring. And then that kind of changes the attitude, and the attitude becomes a little bit more negative. And then while all that is going on, their behaviors start to change. And simple things like making your bed in the morning, picking up after yourself, 
tossing out the garbage, going to school, doing your homework, we tend during relapse mode to start nodding off on those and to start not doing them. And we make little excuses, oh, I don't need to do my homework today. I can do it real quick tomorrow morning. Or I don't need to make my bed this morning. I'm just going to get into it tonight anyway. And we give ourselves little permissions to not do these behaviors that mm -hmm. really keep us on track and really keep us aware. And so we, when we stop doing those little things, they add up and add up and add up. And so long after that, or it might be just a short time after that, then somebody will move to the next stage, and that is actually taking the sip or taking the shot. Right. So it really is a change in pattern in behaviors, attitude, and thoughts. What have you found anecdotally, just through your experience, to be the top three relapse triggers for clients during the early stages of their recovery? Let's say like month one through four. I would have to say uh, the biggest one is probably peer pressure, which we've already talked about. Um, but that is definitely a big one. And I think any relapse prevention plan is really going to need to look at the peer pressure and look at friends in and of themselves. Right. Some kids are going to need to set boundaries with peers. Some may need to just break it off with peers or develop a new set of peers. So peer pressure is definitely one of them. Another one I would say, um, well, the other two would probably be emotions. So boredom tends to be a huge trigger, Absolutely. which really speaks to the fact that when clients leave treatment, they're coming from a structured environment, and then they're going to an unstructured environment. So what you want is when somebody transitions out of treatment back home, they need to have a structure. They need to have activities. They need to have things they enjoy doing and things they need to do. There needs to be time allotted for school and for school activities and for going to AA or going to NA, going to meetings, taking care of themselves, going to outpatient groups, going to see a therapist. Um, and so often kids will get bored and Big times for boredom would have to be summer vacation. That's mm -hmm. a prime time for kids to stay home and get high all summer and play video games and things like that. Um, we also have the holidays, right? That can be a time right. when they're at home. And so boredom can can be a very big trigger for teenagers. Well, I and got then I would say... I was just going to say, I always have boredom up there as my you know, one and two. They're always battling, you know, relationships as the, the two top triggers. But, Absolutely. So you got it. Mm -hmm. Go ahead. And, you All know, right. teenagers, teenagers get bored very easily. You mm -hmm. could be having an intense conversation with them and they'll be bored. Mm -hmm. So... Um, boredom, boredom is definitely a big problem for teenagers as well as for adults yep. because adults can get bored too. Mm -hmm. But when you have teenagers, you know, a lot of them don't have jobs. A lot of them um, don't have activities that um, they've signed up for. So it's very easy to be a teenager and to get bored. So one thing I would suggest a lot of the time is 
after a teenager's been clean and sober for a period of time, one of the things that would be great for them that takes up a lot of time, makes them feel good, earns them money, is getting something like a part-time job. And that's prime time during the summer to deal with boredom. If you get a part-time job and you maintain that part-time job, you're going to be less likely to spend all your time using. So Helps not occupy um, your time, absolutely. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, um, another big trigger would have to be just emotions in general. Um, mm-hmm. Sadness tends to be a big trigger as well as anger. Um, and, you know, with, with the sadness or with the anger, excuse me, anger is a secondary emotion. So... Mm-hmm. It's a lot easier to express anger, and there's a lot of angry kids out there. It's mm-hmm. a lot easier to express anger than it is to express sadness or depression or guilt or shame, which mm-hmm. are often underlying that. Right. And so when you're feeling sad or when you're feeling anger, it's easier to go to the drug or the substance, whatever it may be, to kind of cover it up so that you don't have to feel it. The problem right. is, it only goes away temporarily. It always comes back. So uh, they ha- they when you're in recovery... They haven't, made, they, haven't, they haven't made the drug yet that lasts no. forever. That's so it's right. It's always going to wear off. It's always going to come back. Absolutely. And I have to say one other thing that I've that I found um, with teenagers is, and we're seeing this a lot more with kids these days, and that's a problem of impulse control. Mm-hmm. So they relapse impulsively. They don't even think about it. They engage in a lot of these relapse behaviors impulsively without thinking about it. So mm-hmm. part of the recovery process is teaching them consequential thinking, teaching them that, you know what, you need to look at the possible consequences of your actions before you act. Because all it takes is once. There are there are some drugs out there where you take them once and once in and of itself can kill you or have long-term uh, consequences. So a lack of impulse control is definitely a big trigger as well. Okay. Um, in your last chapter, um, one, one thing that stands out for me that I like, and you can just spend a couple of minutes talking about it as we wrap up, um, hope mm-hmm. and optimism. I mean, that can't be stressed yes. enough, so... Yes, absolutely. So um, recovery doesn't need to be this big, hard thing. Um, It can also be a very positive thing. Mm -hmm. And recovery is probably one of the hardest things somebody's going to do in their life. There is not a whole lot of things that's harder than having to go through residential treatment. And for some people, they'll go through it more than once. They'll go through it multiple times, or they'll try different kinds of treatment. It's very it's very difficult. Part of that is because there's a lot of feelings that come up, and you have to learn all new coping skills. Um, so really, what we want to instill in people when they're going through recovery is that idea of hope and that idea of I'm moving towards something, as opposed to I'm moving away from something. Mm -hmm. So I'm moving towards happiness, or I'm moving towards positive things in my life. I'm moving toward my goals. So 
that if if somebody can maintain a hopeful attitude when they're in recovery, it will take them farther. Because again, if you have a positive attitude about recovery and you have a positive attitude about yourself, then you're more likely to think positively, to act positively, and positive things will happen to you. So hope is definitely um, something that we want to instill in people when they're going through recovery at any age, whether, again, you're 15 or whether you're 55, that hope for the future really is important. Absolutely. All right, the most important question. And again, again, folks, to our listeners, uh, Dr. Bruja is, is one of ours. She works for Our Common Ground as a senior clinician, and it's been so over 10 years now? Uh, 12, actually. 12, oh, okay. Uh, and so this this question is probably the most important question that we, we want to know. It's a more personal question, and that is um, okay. And keep in mind, her last name is Bruja. Dr. Bruja, and so we want to know, when you were in elementary school, and, and, and if, did anyone mess around with you and tease you about your last name, and then you threaten them back and say, look, if you want a piece of this, you're going to have some Bruja coming at you? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and people used to make fun of me all the time about it. In fact, people still do. Um <laughs> They get they get a joy out of it that whole ah oh, brew ha 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 thing you know, yeah <laughs> <laughs> I've learned to cope with it I have some positive coping skills now for it <laughs> so. she's one of ours folks we can joke with her so uh, Dr Bruja thank you very much it's been very informative about relapse thank prevention um, answering the question is it really preventable it actually is um. And also, just to let you know, and our listeners, uh, we have put a link up to her book uh, on our OCG Radio Facebook page. Um, so if you want to get a look at it, it's on Amazon um, by Dr. Jennifer Bruja, the Adolescent Relapse Prevention Planner. And like we said earlier in the interview, um, we don't serve adolescents anymore, and so we just use it for adults. And it doesn't sit on the shelf as a decoration. It's actually being used, and it's... Uh, a good planner for the uh, counselors out there to look at and use in their relapse prevention and education. Dr. Bruja, thank you very much. Thank you very much, Orville. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. So relapse, we said last week, you know, there's this saying about, you know, relapse, it's part of, uh, it's, you know, relapse is a part of recovery. And I, I've sat in on Dr. Bruja when she's doing her relapse uh, prevention and drug education groups. And if you remember the question I asked her about, you know, when, when do people really start to pay attention? And you got some that are really paying attention, you know, first time around. But when you experience a relapse, Second time around, you're really trying to figure it out and pay attention to, look, what do I need to do to prevent this from happening? And so relapse prevention is now uh, an integral part of treatment. All right, we're going to take a break. When we come back, now one of the things that we wanted to do if we had enough time and we don't is we wanted to do a listener topic request 
Um, and so we're going to turn that over to next week, and that will be our main topic. And that's going to be about parents and recovery. And so we're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to start our recovery support time. So a couple of minutes. We're going to take a music break.
Roach on Recovery is a program of OCG Radio. It deals with many topics related to substance abuse, substance abuse treatment, and recovery. Our Recovery Support Time is a show segment where you can receive support from our host for any questions or issues you wish to present related to substance abuse, substance abuse treatment, or recovery. You can reach our host live by calling 646-564-9909. That's 646-564-9909. Or you can send your questions via email at any time to ocgworkca at gmail.com. That's ocgworkca at gmail.com. And our host will respond to your questions on the air. Roach on Recovery. Recovery support time. A time for us to help you. Okay, welcome back to Roach on Recovery. 646-564-9909 is the number. and We're going to get right to it on our recovery support time because i got a lot of email questions and some callers. So let's get right to the phones first. Uh, welcome to Roach on Recovery. Your name and hometown, please. Yes, my name is Eric. I'm from Oakland, California. Welcome, Eric. Thank you very much. Uh, my question was, I know that there's a 12-step program, but I was wondering what other recovery models there are besides that. Well, 12-step is really, uh, they use the term model. It's really a, the term is actually called milieu, and it's spelled M-I-L-I-E-U. Okay. And so the other milieus are would be like social model recovery, therapeutic community is another milieu that people use, um, which are different from modalities, which are okay. residential, outpatient, day treatment, and things of that nature. So okay. those are the three main ones, the 12-step milieu, the social model, then there's inpatient hospital-based treatment, and then the therapeutic community-based treatment. Okay, and I, I was referring to more towards something post-treatment in the recovery process. Are there, like, is, I know that there's, like, a Buddhist um, model you, or something. Do you mean, like, just for just for support? Exactly, just for support, oh. for after-treatment when you're out there. Oh. I mean, obviously, 12-step is the most popular, but um, are there other different ones, I guess, that... Uh, that people can go to or explore to see which one is best suitable, I guess. Listen, that's going to be one of your one of your exciting things to do when you get into that that part of your recovery is to explore what are the things that I can do to continue to support my recovery. It doesn't have to be just the, you know, the the quote unquote same old thing that everybody else is doing and just, you know, the same old thing that's out there. It's whatever supports you and keeps you on the right path. Okay. So yeah, if and you go out there like, and you find, you know, you know, well, you mentioned the Buddhist temple or whatever, whatever, whatever works. Okay. Now, have you heard of any other ones besides the twelve step, the Buddhist? Are there other types of support groups? I mean, just to name a few, can you, off the top of your head? Most, 
most of the support groups are based on the 12-step model. Okay. Okay. Um, the other support groups are usually tied to um, hospital-based programs. Okay. And then there, there, there are support groups out there that are, that are more specific, like there are support groups for grief. There are support groups for dealing with certain types of abuse. Um, you're referring to just a general support for recovery from substance abuse, correct? Correct, yes. Okay. So, yeah, I, my, my advice to you, my suggestion to you would be to, when you get to that stage of recovery, explore. See what is out there other than just 12 steps and what fits for you. Okay. That sounds good. Well, wonderful. Thank you very much. Thank you. All right. Have a good night. All right. Bye-bye. All right. Bye. Nothing is written in stone. There's no, you know, you got to do this or you're not going to succeed. No, it's what, you know, everybody is different and everybody has to find what's going to work for them that's going to keep them on the positive and constructive path. And for some, for a lot, it is going through AA, NA, or one of the 12-step groups. And for some, it's something different. Some people don't attend any. You know, they're involved in sports or their church or their hobbies or what have you. So it's whatever works. Uh, let's, let me go and read one of our um, email ones. Uh, this is from Melissa in Daly City. Oh, on 12-step again. What are the pros and cons of a 12-step-based program versus a behavioral modification program of recovery? There's no pro and there's no con, in my opinion. It's whichever one works for you is the one that you should vest yourself in. Neither is better than the other because it depends on the individual what's going to work for them. There are millions of people who have achieved recovery, 12-step programs. And there are millions of people who have achieved recovery through other methods and then utilize the 12-step programs for support after the the other treatment models that they have utilized. So there's no pro or con. It really is an individual choice. Some people don't like the 12-step because um, it may be too faith-based for them. And so something that's not along those lines may be more up their alley. So that's an individual choice. But either one will work in terms of if you're looking for recovery, you're going to get it if you want it, regardless of which door you enter from. So that would be my answer for that. All right, let's go to the phones now, and your name and your hometown, please. Um, My name is Kimberly. I'm from Half Moon Bay. Okay. Welcome. Hi. Well, well, hi. Thank you. Um, Last week, um, we talked about the um, uh, reservations and the relapse, and um, I wanted to say you were correct. They do go hand in hand. When Uh you relapse, you do have a... The reservation somewhere in the brain that's just waiting for that to happen. Right. Um, and that's what I'm gathering. I, I did some research on it, and I thank you for that information. Um, You're welcome. The other 
And the other one I'm trying to figure out is when does the obsession to use drugs or drink subside? I mean, I you know, actually be rid of of the mind, you know, thinking those things and the body, the physical part as well. I mean, I well, mean, is there is it more like individually based or you talking about the cravings? Yeah, the obsession, the you know, the and the compulsive, the compulsive behavior that goes with the obsession to use. Um, when I'm trying to figure out, huh? Let, let me separate the answer in two parts for you. Okay. Physiologically, so if a person is addicted to something like an opiate or even methamphetamines, where there might an alcohol, where there where there's a physiological reaction to uh, a withdrawal to stopping the use. So once that's dealt with and that time has passed, we're now just dealing with the psychological addiction. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so if a person has cravings and thoughts and about using and and and, and like using your term, this compulsion and obsession about using, it comes to one simple question that they have to ask themselves. Mm-hmm. What is it that I am trying to run from, escape from, or not face? Yeah. Why I am focused on medicating myself. Okay. So, do you this mean stuff that- is not this. This stuff is not deep. It's not complex. You don't need to be a rocket scientist to understand it. Okay. Um, so you're you're saying that generally on that type of um, problem of the obsession, it's basically um, is it more like a once like a spiritual physical, thing or a well, higher power? Well, well, all of that's involved. But once the physical, so if you're using a drug that has that, that has a physical addiction part to it, once that is done and dealt with, you're now just left with the the psychological. So we're talking the emotional, the mental, the whole the whole gamut, spiritual, everything. Okay. Uh-huh. And if a person is eight months down the line, twelve months down the line, sixteen months down the line, and they're still obsessed and they're still craving using, okay. I will ask them the same question that I just asked you, which is something for you to think about, is what is it that I'm trying to escape from or hide from or run from while I want to medicate myself? Okay. That answer lies deep within, and the person must answer it. Okay. To, to then get to your question, to be able to then answer your question of why why do I have this obsession? Yeah. Okay, so you got to answer that first question first, and then we can tell you why you have the obsession. Okay. 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 So, um, do I get a week to work on it? <laughs> you got a week to work on it. Okay. So, um, you're right. saying, what is um, what what is the obsession to use drugs, and what's causing no. that? Is that? No. What is it that I am hiding from, running from, or trying to escape from? Okay. Okay. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye. So if someone is, you know, down down the road, and we're not talking about someone early in their recovery, because early in the early stages, you're going to, you know, crave. But if you're down the road in your recovery, and when I say down the road, I mean anywhere eight months 
pecked down, okay, and you're still craving and thinking about it like, you know, you just entered treatment, then there's something wrong with that picture. Because if you exit treatment, we can predict what's going to happen. So we, we obviously have not got underneath and dealt with what is it that you are trying to not deal with, you're trying to hide from, escape from, not talk about, that's keeping this craving right in the forefront of your mind. So it's out there. Let's go back to the phones. Your name and hometown, please. William Polhamus, San Jose, California. Okay. Go ahead, Will. Uh, I- Okay, my question was um, justification and using. Um, William? Recently, yes, yes, sir. Can, can you speak up? Oh, okay, louder. Is that? Is, can you hear me now? Yeah, much better. Okay. Um, my question was uh, I had quite a bit of clean, clean time under my belt, and uh, I ended up picking up due to lack of help in the relationship, and then I started justifying my use because of the lack of help in the relationship when it came to kids, laundry, housework, and so forth. So my my real question is, how do how does one that decides to pick up and justifies it as a lack of help, what really was I dealing with? What, why did I really pick up, or is that justification actually valid? Okay, that's a very complicated question you just asked. So I, I, I would the complicated question for myself too. Okay, but we're gonna but we're we're gonna break it we're gonna make it simple though. <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna turn it into a simple question. Rather than use the word justification, I'd rather use the word rationale. Okay. Okay. And so if I he- heard you correctly, you're saying that the rationale that you have told yourself or used for why you relapsed is because of family pressures and things that, that occurred. Am I, is that, is that fair statement? You're, you're, you're on point, you're on point. Okay. And so you're, the question you're asking is whether or not that is a valid rationale for what, for why you would relapse? Yes, that's, that's pretty much, that's pretty much it. Yeah. Okay. There's no such thing as a valid rationale. It's just, it's just a rationale. It's neither valid or invalid. It is what it is. If that's, you know, if, I mean, ultimately, there are, there there are always ancillary things that contribute to a person relapsing, but ultimately, bottom line, it's a choice that a person makes. So what I mean no, by yeah, when I say... Yeah, 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 yeah. that's pretty much what, uh, that's pretty much what uh, a therapist of mine said, was that okay. the same thing. And it okay. makes sense. It makes sense. I use justification as the same as rationale, like it hand in right. hand, um, in 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 my dictionary, I guess. Okay. Um, but yeah, thank you, thank you, Orville. Um, that makes a lot of sense. Okay, thank you. Uh, do I hang up now or no? Yeah, you can. Bye bye. All right, bye bye. Thank you. Okay, we're gonna go to name and hometown, please. Rojas Redwood City. Welcome. Hello. Yeah, welcome. Go ahead. Okay. Yeah. Uh, 
Good evening. Uh, I hope you guys are having a, a great day and a good time. And uh, my question, and my question was, uh, if someone has a really good reason to do drugs, and or are actually sexually overactive, and they're young, sixteen, seventeen, and I'm trying to help them out, what would be uh, some good words or? Yeah, some good words or 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 some uh something that to let them see that 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 I, I care and that I'm trying to uh guide them to the in the right direction even though I know they don't want to listen. Did you say that they have good reasons for why they're using drugs? Yeah, like their mom died um like about 8 months ago. So they're uh they're my cousins. Uh one is 16 and and the other one 17. Okay, so let's use different terminology. We won't say good reasons. We'll we'll say that they have um there's underlying causes for why they're using Mm-hmm. Okay, and you want to be able to tell them some things to try and you just I have to back up. You mentioned something about sexually active. What what did that mm-hmm. have to do with what you were saying? Uh, I I don't know. I feel like I mean I know that they, that they're uh, you know having a sexual relationship with people and it's not just one person. It's with other, um, a bunch of people. You know. Okay, so you want them to be be safe and 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 show some self control. Yeah, pretty much because they weren't like this when when their mom was around. So I would just. So they're, they're I, I mean, out. it's pretty. It's just like in in our faces, you know. So it's. They're they're, they're acting out. Mhm. They're acting out, and to be honest, you said they're sixteen and seventeen. So the the only thing you can do, and this is the this is a key when you're dealing with adolescents, okay? You have to be committed. And when I say committed, I mean really committed to repeating yourself and being consistent with your message. So if you think you can go up in there and just say it one or two times, you know, hey, I think you really need to take a look at what you're doing. I think you need to do something different. You know, I think you need to get some help. If you think you can do that two or three times and that, and that will be enough, you're sadly mistaken. You got to be willing to do it every day, all the time. Any time that you're around them, any time that you speak to them, any time that you see them, you got to be committed. Yeah, I mean, definitely it makes sense, you know, because because uh, of what happened, and and, and I, the thing way, is, th- by the way, I'm sorry, sorry to interrupt. By the way, mm-hmm. sorry to interrupt. And while you're committed 100% and you're doing everything you're supposed to do to try and, and get them on the right track, you may not see no positive result of everything that you're saying and or doing yet. So you cannot go into it with any preconceived notions or any pre-established expectations. Because otherwise you're going to disappoint yourself. 
So the only thing you can do, in all honesty, is be there, be consistent with your message of support and, and, and telling them what's the right thing to do, how you'd like to see them behave. If they're using drugs and you think they're addicted to drugs, that you'd like to see them get help and be consistent in saying that. Because even though they may not change their behavior, if they hear it all the time from you, the one thing they're taking away from this, you know what, I know this person cares because every time they see me, they're saying, they're telling me what something that's good for me. And even though I'm not doing that right now, I hear it. So the test for you is whether or not you can be consistent, even though you might not see the change that you're looking for. Yeah, that's, that's the test. That's one of the things that I thought about too. You know, like it's it's. Uh, I don't think it's it's not that I. I feel like it's not gonna happen. It's gonna. I feel like it's gonna um, spiral to to something bad. But well, you yeah, gotta definitely. Have you gotta have hope. Yeah. You gotta have some hope, man. Because you you can't let you you can't let that vibe that vibe cannot come out of you towards them. You know what I'm saying? So you gotta have oh, hope. Yeah. You gotta have a positive vibe coming towards them. That you know what you can do this. You know what you're better than this. And so when you're giving them that message, it's gotta come from a a, a positive place. Definitely, man. Uh, thank you okay. so much, all right, and uh, thank you okay. for all the help that you give up. You're very welcome. Bye. Bye bye. Yeah, it's hard when you're dealing with adolescence. Um, but like I told him, you have to be you know, it's like with your you know, anyone out there has had children, you know, dealt with them as teenagers, it's like the strong you know, they're gonna test you and you know, who's gonna give in first? And it's not gonna be me. And so you got to be consistent and show them that you're, if anything, you're going to be consistent with the message. And there will be a payoff. It may not be right away. You know that thing they say about, you know, instant gratification. And we may not get the instant gratification. It may happen a few years down the line. And so you got to be strong enough to stay in that fight. It's kids, I'm telling you. All right, let's go to name and hometown, please. Yeah, hi, my name is Mark. I'm from Redwood City. Hi, Mark. Welcome. Welcome. Thank you. How can I help you? Yeah, hi. Um, my question was, uh, I'm I'm sponsor shopping right now, and uh, other than long long term sobriety, um, what what are the what are the other qualities you look for in in, in a, a good sponsor? Well, first, I got to tell you, I've never heard that term, sponsor shopping. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I just mean, you know, well, I'm looking for a sponsor. Okay. Well, you want someone that's going to, uh, what's a good word to describe it? That you, is a, it's a good fit, you get along with, um, you you can feel and sense their support. Um, they have shown themselves, and, and this is this occurs over time. You, you obviously aren't going to know this after a month, but that they have shown themselves to be there for you when you really need it. Okay. You know what I'm saying? And so, yeah, 
to use your term, yeah, I guess I mean you might have to try try somebody out, you know, to see, you know, if they if they fit with you and jive with you and you know and, and mesh with you. You know, the person, okay. you, know, you don't want personality clashes, you know what I mean? So Okay. Well, thanks for your help. I appreciate it. You're very welcome. Thank you. All right, you have a good night. You too. Bye-bye. We get that question a lot about sponsors. And how will you really know until you, I guess you got to try them out and see um, that if the person meshes with you and it's a good personality fit, um, you certainly can't spend all your time arguing about uh, recovery or about what one person is doing or not doing. Um, that's that's a waste of energy and time. So you want someone that's going to be the, – the sponsor has to – not necessarily like a parental role, but the, the sponsor's role is someone that's there to support support the person that's you know in in their those delicate parts of their recovery, coming out of treatment, and um, have to be understanding. Certainly has to be positive. You certainly don't want someone that's a negative person. That's the worst thing that you need. You need someone that's that's that has a positive vibe to them, and. Um, as I've always said, one of my favorite things, you don't need someone to rocket scientist because none of this stuff is complex. It's simple stuff to support somebody and be there for them when, when they need to talk and, and, and if you need to uh, talk them through something that they're experiencing. So, all right, let's uh, go back to some of the emails. This is Adam from San Mateo. He writes, um, how does one know when they are ready to leave treatment? Well, that depends. Uh depends on what kind of treatment you're in. Um, some treatment, you know, they have phases that you have, and you have to achieve certain things um, and to progress through treatment. And some, it's just strictly time. You know, you're, you get 90 days, you know, whether you're doing your thing or you're not doing your thing. Once the 90 days are up, that's it. So it really depends on the type of treatment that a person has chosen. And again, as an example, a 12-step program, they go through the 12 steps, but really it doesn't end after the 12 step. You finish the 12th step. It, it continues on as you continue to exemplify all of the steps in your life. So... um I'm not sure what he actually means by this. Um so let's let's pretend. Let's pretend he means how do I know when I am ready that I have gotten enough knowledge about recovery that I'm ready to go out there and try it on my own. I said, "Well, I've said before, you'll know because it's almost like a spiritual thing that happens inside of you that you've got it. You want it, you've got it, you're committed to it." And you just have this feeling about you and this freedom about you because you're not worried about, you know, using and, you know, your mind's not occupied about, oh, am I going to relapse? None of that's occurring because the focus is now about what I'm, what do I need to accomplish to, to get my move my life forward? So that's how I'm going to, that's how I'm going to answer his question. Shane writes... Uh, what is your take on NA or AA meetings? 
His hometown is Galloway, Ireland, by the way. What does he mean by what is my take? Hmm. My take is that they're an excellent uh, means of support and or an excellent means of someone entering recovery. As I said before, there's millions of people who started out getting up in an NA or an NA meeting and saying, hey, I've been clean for one day. And everybody claps and supports them. And they come back the next day and say, hey, I've been clean for two days. And they do that for 365 days until you hear them say, hey, I'm here for my one-year chip. I've been clean for 365 days. And that's how they do it. So my take is that it is a viable means of support and recovery. People should take advantage of it if they need it. So that's shame. Okay, back to the phones. Name and hometown, please. Welcome. Hello, my name is uh, Brian. I'm from Redwood City, California. Hi, Brian. Welcome. Hello, how are you doing this evening? Good, how are you? Oh, feeling healthy. Um, feeling like uh, recovery's really taken off for me. And um, Yes, yes, I was um, calling in just to, uh, to speak about how um, I've been working on my program and um, uh, if you had any recommendations for, uh, for, the, for the maintenance after, uh, after you reach uh, 90 days of uh, sobriety. Get to day number 91. Absolutely. One day at a time. Where where are you at mentally in your recovery? Are you done? Are you, are, are you are you done with the life, the negative life? I sure am. I've been writing. Um, <clears throat> actually, I've been uh, writing five five gratitudes at the at the end of my day, looking at mm-hmm. uh, looking at how uh, how grateful I am and what I'm working on, and it's been a uh, been really uh making a great turnaround with uh the with the way I have a positive outlook and celebrating recovery each day. Okay. Then I will ask you don't worry about counting the days. Okay. If that's if the mindset is what you that you described is what you have, which is what you need to have, by the way, then you don't have to worry about counting the days. I'm with you. Okay. Okay. Just keep doing what you're doing. Absolutely. Yeah, feeling really, uh, really positive. Um, everything seems to be taken off. My energy levels. <clears throat> I'm exercising again. I've been in like a like a ten year slump where where I looked at exercise, and now here I am every day feeling uh feeling healthy and stronger and looking at recovery with the the positive outlook and thank you for the advice excellent keep it up thank you all right okay sir good night good night good stuff that's what i like to hear someone feeling good about themselves in recovery all right let's go to your name and hometown please Henry, East Palo Alto, California. Hey, Henry, welcome. 
Welcome. Uh, yeah, it's good to be here. Um, you know, I've got a couple of que- couple of questions, but the one that's first and foremost on my mind is I see a lot of people come into a therapeutic community type setting and and they never use again. They go out about their life and they don't go to NA meetings and AA meetings and and stuff like that. And and I'm thinking about a career change. You know, I, I wanted to go for uh, my Katie certification. And I thought about uh, substance abuse counseling. However, <clears throat> my question would be, uh, is there a high incidence of burnout amongst the working people in the recovery community when they make a choice like this? Um, the burnout occurs when someone has not worked on their own personal development before they've entered the field and so they're in the field and they still have their own issues and it screws with them while they're trying to help other people. Ah, I I see what you're driving at. In other words, do a thorough job. Yeah, you need to be in a space where you have taken care of yourself before you can help someone else. Yeah, basically keep everything on an objective level. No, not not that. I mean that if if you're working in the field, you have to be objective. I'm saying before a person decides to get in the field, any field that involves helping another human being, right? It's it's always best and and it's recommended that make sure that you yourself are healthy and well first. So that you can then help another. Yeah, I get that. Okay. <clears throat> so, I guess that would lead me into the next question, which was how would one decide? I mean, I guess it's a personal thing. You know when you've dealt with everything on some level and so on and so forth. But how does one come to the understanding that they are ready for the next step? <clears throat> Talking are about there getting things into- that they need to look for, or are there attitudes they need to? Ch- I mean, in reference to what? Well, uh, you know, they say our best thinking has uh, got us in the worst of places. So maybe my best thinking on whether I'm uh, got all my issues fixed or not might not be le- best left up to me. Would you go see a therapist to uh, double-check? I mean, what kind of... <laughs> you see what I'm driving at? How do you yeah, know yeah. when you... You you know. Right. Well, my you disease know. tells me I'm okay. That That's not the disease. That's your, think- your thinking. Oh, okay. All right. Okay, so um, basically it's just something that you feel inside. You know when you're ready for that kind of stuff, right? If you're talking about uh, in terms of being a counselor for others, yeah, that to, to me personally, and I can't speak for another human being, but for me personally, it's a calling. So, right. you know, it's something you feel inside, you know, in, in your heart. It's not something you think about, you know, and you know, plan about. It's a calling that you have. Right, it and, just kind of happens. And if it's a calling, you approach it in a certain way versus 
if a person says, oh, I think that'll be a good job to have, and well, then you approach it in a different way, and you're not going to be very good at it. Right. No, but I get into recovery. I actually enjoy working with people in recovery. Then that's so I get the part between it. The uh, point of view from a job, just like another, just something to pay the bills, and not so much something that you settle into to be career career oriented over. Or, well, they say if you like your job, you never have to work a day in your life. Right. 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 So that's kind of where I'm coming from. Hey, oh. if you believe it, if you believe it's for you, go for it. Right. Okay. Well, that's good. Okay, sir. Okay. Thank All you right. very Thanks. much. Thanks, Henry. Bye-bye. Bye. Yeah, that's a uh, a personal choice. Uh, someone's got to make if they want to, uh, whatever field it is they want to work in. Um, It's something you, you know, feel inside that, hey, this is the right direction for me. Um, Only you will know that. But it's got to be from the heart. Otherwise, you're not going to, it's not going to come easy or natural for you. There can be 15 people working in 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 a room in, in the same, let's say, just use this field as a substance abuse counselor, and out of that 15, maybe three of them have the gift where it just comes to them naturally because it's just within them, um, and it, it just comes from their heart. It's, it's a calling that they have. And the other 12 really have to work at it to be good. That's just been my experience. That's what I've seen, my two cents. Okay. Name and hometown, please. Hello. Hello. Yes, name and hometown, please. Hi, good evening. My name is Marvin. I'm from Daly City, California. Hi, Marvin. How can I help you? Hi, I'm calling back uh, regards to the last conversation that you and I have uh, regarding the nicotine. Okay. And I, um, I did, did some researching on that one. Um, I learned that nicotine is a drug, um, um, and it's deadly. And I'm trying uh, to limit uh, my smoking habit. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's working uh, because uh, I'm able to um, uh, do other things besides smoking, especially after have, I eat. And, uh, so have have you have you quit or you've just you've slowed down? Uh, slowing down. Okay. Okay. Good stuff. Yes. And so. Did you learn that nicotine is a stimulant? Yeah, I saw that too when I was reading that pamphlet. Okay. That's what I wanted you to find out, that nicotine was a stimulant. And did you learn that nicotine, a mood-altering drug, not a mind-altering drug? Did you learn that? uh, No, I did not, but thank you for... Let me tell you why that's important. Part of the reason why it's, in my opinion, the most addictive drug in the world, or in the world, to me the most addictive drug known to man is nicotine. Um, 
not only because of its habitual the habitual addiction, but obviously the physiological addiction. Okay, and so you're trying to work on the habitual side by slowing down and not smoking so much after you eat and doing certain things, right? Yes. And that's a, that's that's a good approach. And some people also tell you another good approach is to go cold turkey, just stop. But that's up to you. Whatever feels yes. comfortable for you. Yes. I've never smoked cigarettes, so it's hard for me to say what's the best way to do it. I can only say, whichever way you choose, just do it. Yes. Okay? Okay. Just, Thank you. Just out, of, just out of curiosity, Marvin, how many cigarettes are you smoking per day? Uh, per day, four sticks uh, a day. And you uh, used to smoke how many? I used to smoke like eight sticks a day. Okay, so you cut so you cut it in half. I cut it in half, and what I, what okay. I do in my I'm creating a, a pattern for me when I smoke cigarette. I smoke it half only, and then I turn it off, and and then the next time the next time I'm gonna smoke again is smoke the half of it. Um, All right, so you're gonna then cut it down to two cigarettes a day. Yes. That's, okay, uh, and then and then eventually zero. So that's good stuff. Yes. And, okay. Uh, also, um, it's kind of helping me because in the morning and at night mm-hmm. when I when I brush my teeth and then I can when I inhale the toothpaste, um, uh, you know that when I brush my teeth I, I tend to like um, cough, um, and I think it's it's because of the cigarette the nicotine inside you know also. Um, oh yes. Yeah. So, um, I'm I'm All right, Marvin, realizing. So keep, keep keep us updated. Tell give us a call back when you get down to two cigarettes. Sure, it's my pleasure. All right. I we want to follow you. We want to follow it till the end, okay? Okay. All right, good stuff, sir. Thank you so much. All and right, bye bye. You're welcome. Bye. You too. We'll see if he can do it. Get it get it all the way down to zero. No smoking for him. That's, that's good stuff if he can do that. Okay. Uh, name and hometown, please. Hi, I'm Melissa from Daly City. Hi, Melissa. Hi. Um, so my question is about um, finding a sponsor. Like how how would you go about um, finding a sponsor that um, – you know, you feel is right for you since, you know, you just, when you work the steps and you share some pretty intense information with them, um, just how do you go about, you know, finding the right person for you? It's funny that you're asking this because another caller asked or said that, you know, they're, they were in the middle of sponsor shopping. Oh, really? So, <laughs> so it seems to be a common theme lately about people, uh, you know, look wanting to know and looking at, you know, sponsors. Um, you, you you hit the nail on the head. You know, the person has to fit with you. You know, the personalities have to mesh. has to be someone that you get along with because obviously this is going to be someone you're going to be talking to, right? Someone mm-hmm. you're going to be looking to for support when you need it. And so 
it's got to be somebody that is a good, you know, that, that you get along with and it's a good fit for you. And, and it might be some trial and error, you know what I mean? It's hard to, you don't, you don't, you won't know until you try it out for a, a month or two and see, hey, you know, how does this person, you know, mesh with me? Yeah. And so. Okay. It's it, it's it's going to be a trial and error. Okay. But the, the right. best way, a good way though to limit, so this doesn't go on and on and on and on and on forever and ever a mm-hmm. trial and error, is to be clear, and honest and upfront with who you are and what you're looking for in a sponsor. And then the person can say, well, well, that's not me, or you know, hey, you know, yeah, I can do that. I'm, you know, I like that. You know what I mean? Yeah. So if you're if you if you're upfront and honest about what you what you need, then you'll have a better chance of finding someone that fits that. Okay, well great. Yeah, I'll definitely take that into consideration. By the way. Yes. A sponsor can be anybody. It doesn't have to be a quote unquote official sponsor. It could be anybody uh, like, that supports any anybody that supports you. Oh, okay. They don't have to have the sponsor badge. <laughs> oh, that's good to know. Yes, I haven't seen okay. any of those uh, lately anyways. Yeah, but it could be anyone that supports you can be, can quote-unquote, be your sponsor. Okay, well, yeah, no, I mean, that's, that's helpful information. I, I'll uh, take that into consideration. Okay, thank you. All right, Colin. thank you. Bye-bye. Right, bye-bye. Sponsor theme today. Okay, let's go back to, we still have a few minutes, uh, to some of the emails. Uh, Angel from East Palo Alto asks, how can recovery help me in my own neighborhood? Now, I'm not sure what he means by that, but I'm going to guess that what he means is I'm going back to the hood. It's a negative environment. I'm trying to keep this recovery thing going. How am I going to do that while I'm going back to the hood? That's my interpretation of what he's what he's asking. I could be wrong, but that's how I read it. And I always tell males and females if you're going back to to your neighborhood and your neighborhood is not the best environment, but you know what? It's yours. It's where you live. It's your reality. Then let's prepare for that. Don't wait until you get there to prepare. Let's prepare in advance. Let's role play some of the things that you might encounter. People that might come up to you and talk and talk to you old friends that might try and pull you in. Let's role play that. Let's practice what you're going to say, how you're going to handle those situations, how you're going to act and behave. Let's practice it while we're here. This way, when you get out there, you'll have some confidence behind you of being able to successfully maneuver and handle yourself when those those situations come up. And there's a lot of that. And a lot of people don't bring that to the fore. They don't really talk about that. But there's a lot of concern about 
you know, what's going to happen when I go back to my neighborhood? How am I going to deal with everything that's back there? Because it ain't, you know, it ain't all rosy back there. It's, you know, it's a, it's a negative environment, and that's the bottom line. Well, we got to practice, and we got to, you know, play it out while we're in a, in a safe environment and prepare for what you're going back to. And I think a mistake that's made often is people don't prepare. And that's not only on clients that are in treatment. That that, that falls on the staff also because we, we have to be aware enough to understand the environment that clients are going to be returning to and prepare them for that environment. We can't prepare them for an imaginary environment. We have to prepare them for the real environment they're going back to. And and that requires us to role play and practice all the possible scenarios that may happen or the scenarios that you may be afraid of. So it does re- require from the client some gut level honesty about their fears. They got to come forth with it. You know, what are you afraid of? What are your concerns? And let's talk about it and then let's just role play it so you can get it down. And then by the time you get out there, it's like rolling off your tongue like it, like instinct. That's the goal. But you got to practice it. So we got to make sure that happens. Providers out there, let's make sure that happens. Okay, uh, Thomas from Belmont writes, when can we be considered healed from our sickness slash disease of addiction? Or is it always once an addict, always an addict? Well, we did a show on that a while ago, on that uh, that mantra, that dogma. If is that in fact the case? If you are, if you have become, because excluding babies who are born, obviously. Most people are not born as addicts. So you become an addict through some way, shape, or form. And so the question is, well, if you become an addict as a teenager or a young adult or an adult, are you then always going to be an addict? He's also asking, uh, when can you be considered healed from your sickness or disease of addiction. And by the way, that's another debate, you know, about whether or not it's disease or not. So we might actually do a show on that. It's, that's a big debate out there, too, in some circles. Um, Thomas, the answer to that question, the first part of your question on, in regards to when you can be considered healed is when you feel that you have resolved, conquered, flushed out, all of the things that have contributed to you becoming an addict. There's no stone left unturned. You have faced down all of the quote-unquote demons. And when that has occurred, and you have faced them down, and you have come to an understanding, a resolution, acceptance, or developed coping mechanisms so that whatever these these experiences that you've had no longer impact your daily decision-making and your daily living, then using your terminology of healed, 
then you can say, hey, you know what? I've moved past that. I'm now in a different space of my life. That's how I would phrase it. Now, whether or not he asks the uh, the debate question about whether or not once an addict, always an addict, I think people know where I stand. I don't, I don't believe that to be the case. But that has to be demonstrated. See, in, in order for a person to make that argument, they have to have demonstrated that they're no longer, in my opinion, no longer in the life, the negative life, and they have demonstrated that they've been in a positive and constructive lifestyle for a period of time. And then I would ask them, if that's the case, knowing that the, the word addict has a negative connotation to it, and that if you in society when they say addict, that someone doesn't think in their mind mentally, they don't have a positive mental picture when that word is used. And if that's the case, I would not urge you, if you've been 10 years doing your thing, living your life, being a positive and constructive person, okay, no longer living the negative life, I would not urge you to continue to refer to yourself as something you are no longer. That's my position. But you have to get there. And you have to demonstrate it. You, just, it's not, you, you don't get to, you have to earn that. You don't just, just get to call yourself, you know, that and say, oh, I'm no longer this. We have, to, we have to look at the record book. And it has to show, hey, this person, you know what, this person, 15 years. This person's turned their life around. And if someone asks him, would you, would you still call them an addict? Well, they're not displaying addictive behaviors. They're not, they're not out there doing the things they were doing while they were a drug addict. So why would I refer to them as that? So that's my position. We can argue about it later. Okay, so that was Thomas. Um, let's go to Ricky from Vallejo. He writes, why does it usually take multiple treatment episodes to get it? That's a good question. Why does it usually take multiple treatment episodes to get it? Well, because a person didn't want it the first time. Now, that sounds very simplistic. And it, it's not meant to, and it's purposely meant to sound simplistic, but it's not meant to sound sarcastic or offending. But when we when we strip away all of the the fluff and we get down to the the core, the real nitty gritty, it comes down to a choice. Regardless of whatever the life experiences are that are contribute that have contributed to the lifestyle, ultimately, when a person makes the decision to enter into treatment and try and recover from that lifestyle, and they don't succeed the first time, well, we obviously have to look at well, why didn't they succeed? What happened? Why did they make the decision to leave treatment, or if they completed? some form of treatment, why did they ultimately making the decision to use again? What happened? So, yes, my answer was simplistic, but ultimately, if, if we have the person in front of us, we have some work to do, some digging to do to get to the core 
to get to, I mean, we know the core answer is they ch- the person made a choice to pick up and use, but we want to know why. So I can't answer Ricky's, I can't give Ricky the why because that takes some digging. But I can tell him that ultimately it was a choice that was made. So each time a person, I don't like using the word fail because fail to me is when you when you give up. Each time they don't have a successful outcome, now there's a choice in there somewhere that contributes to that. The the person is not devoid of any responsibility. They have they have the ultimate responsibility to do everything in their power to change their life, make the right decisions. So, Ricky, the simple answer is because the person chooses not to get it. I I I would I would find it hard to believe. I'm not saying it's impossible, but I would say my experience has been in the different programs that I have visited that recovery is available. The environment for people to obtain recovery is available. And there's no reason in terms of environment-wise why someone couldn't get it. So you have to look at the individual. Even though, and we know this, those of us who work in the field, that you know, clients who choose to leave treatment or post-treatment um, relapse, you know, a lot of times they blame the program, and that's fine. When they, when, whenever they blame the program, I always ask them, "When you say the program, what do you mean? Do you mean the walls? Do you mean the roof, the seat? I mean, what do you mean? Do you mean the people, the the, the, the staff that are in the program? Are, are they at fault for the decision you've made?" Whoever you want to blame other than you, for as long as you want to blame them, will be how long it takes you to get back to where the source of the problem is, which is you. So I usually try and nip that in the bud real quick because I don't want them to waste any more time in this recovery, getting this recovery thing started. So I kind of like slice and dice it very fast and let's get back to you because you are the problem, not the structure, not the staff, not anything else. It's you. Let's see. We've got a few minutes left here. Um, Eric has a very good question. Um, I think we spoke to Eric today, so he also wrote in a question. Yeah, Eric from Oakland. Uh, are there any programs, resources that family members of those in recovery can go to to better understand the addiction process? Well, first of all, Eric, they can uh, listen to Roach on Recovery. Seriously. We can tell them. And um, I believe I said to someone early on that a good resource for the family is Al, A-L hyphen Anon, A-N-O-N. Um, that's a good support source for families that have people who are in recovery or in the midst of trying to get recovery and they want to learn about recovery, etc., um, some programs have, like us, have family associations that you know, where the parents get together and meet and talk about and learn about addiction and what it's really about and so on and so forth. It's very important for the family to get educated. 
If the family doesn't get educated about what it's re- what it's about being an addict and what's required for the person to get recovery, get into recovery, and be successful in recovery, um, then the family can just fall for anything. And the family is, is going to play a very important role in that person succeeding or not. And you certainly don't want someone trying to get over on you. And so you need to learn, hey, what is this addiction thing about? What is it really about? And understand the behaviors that come with it, the thought process that comes with it, and how the person you thought you reared up as your child, okay, and all the things you taught them, and all of a sudden they're they're doing all this stuff, and they're saying, well, they're talking to you in a certain way, and they're getting in trouble with the law, and you're wondering, what's causing all of this? Well, that's part of what being an addict is. They get involved in all of those things. They become different from who they were. And so as a parent, we need to learn that and so that we know what we're dealing with here. And if you get educated, then you can also be a part of the process of getting that person into recovery or, or helping them sustain recovery. You can't stay ignorant. You cannot stay ignorant and support somebody in recovery. You've got to learn about addiction and what it's about. Uh, Mark is asking for what do you look for in a sponsor. I think we answered that already. A sponsor can be anyone who supports you and should be someone that you get along with. Um, and then ultimately, the sponsor really has to be the one that kind of drives that relationship in terms of being the support person. So let's see. We got time for one more. And we'll go with Shane's real quick. When do cravings usually leave? Is there a time period or is everyone different? Everyone is different. Um, but usually, you know, if you're in treatment about ninety days, you should be done that would definitely done with the physical cravings. And if you're really into your treatment, and really focus on your recovery, the psychological cravings should be gone by then. If you're really doing what you're supposed to be doing. If you're not into your treatment and your mind is focused elsewhere, then there's opportunity for the psychological cravings to stay or to stay hoovering in the background and reappear very easily. And that's not what we want. So it depends on the person, Shane. But they do leave 90 days focused. The craving should be gone. Okay, folks, that's all we have time for today. Um, I want to thank uh, Dr. Jennifer Bruhar, our guest that we had on relapse prevention and answering the question on is it really preventable? It is. It is preventable. But you got to do the work. So we're going to close uh, again with a song and uh, thank all of our listeners, all of our callers, the people who wrote in, and uh, our co-host and producer should be back next Tuesday, and we will see you guys back next Tuesday also, 4 p.m. sharp Pacific time. Thank you.
That's our show for this evening. Thank you for listening. Be sure to listen to our next broadcast Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time on blogtalkradio.com forward slash OCG Radio. Like us, friend us, and follow us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash OCGWorkCA and on Twitter at OCGWorkCA. You can listen to podcasts of all our shows on iTunes under Roach on Recovery or on our Blog Talk Radio homepage. This has been a presentation of OCG Recovery Radio. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino at chumbacasino.com. Choose from hundreds of social casino-style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.